Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the Human Odyssey podcast. My name is Skander and I'm joined by my wonderful co-host Jamie. The excerpt you just heard was from the song Broken Ladders by Megan Murray, an R&B pop singer-songwriter. Make sure you go through a bit of her music, her EP Out of Mind is available on Spotify and it's gorgeous. Today we're talking to Vicky Hurd, award-winning author, expert, strategist and senior manager who's been working on environment, food and farming issues for over 25 years. She's a fellow of the Royal Entomological Society, was policy director for the NGO Sustain and sits on the board of numerous food and environment organizations. So first we'd like to spend a couple of minutes at least um, asking how our guests are doing because these with COVID, with uh, climate anxieties and such, is a really turbulent time. So Vicky, how are you doing? Thank you. Thank you, Thank you for asking. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm doing okay. I'm... Um... I've been shielded for, for an underlying condition, so I've oh, spent right. a lot of time looking at the insects in my garden, which has been a blessing that I have a garden. Um, yeah. But also, yeah, it's really, really harsh on people who don't have access to nature. I think that's really hard. Yeah, mm-hmm. but, uh, okay, I had that. Yeah, I found, I found myself personally getting much more uh, in contact with, my, with, with nature through my own garden um, in these past few, few months. Um, so, yeah, I think... Our thoughts are definitely with the, those people that don't have those green spaces. Absolutely. I discovered Absolutely. a lot of local walks that I never knew about. Yeah. It's, it's actually very nice. And mm. I'm just thinking this is not an option for inner city people, unfortunately. Yeah. No. Although yeah. London, I live in London and it isn't not bad in London. We've got, it's the greenest city I know. Um, it's got a huge yeah. amount of green space. So okay. I've so just, many foxes yeah. as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We have a community orchard down the road as well, which is wonderful to visit, especially in full bloom. And it's buzzing with insects and uh, the fruits oh, now fantastic. out. Uh, really good. Mm. Yeah, well, I hope the this whole COVID period then hasn't treated you too badly, even though you have had to, to be shielded. Um, let's go over your your work and kind of personal history in the climate movements and climate organizations. Um, what, how did you start your your journey, I guess, from maybe your student years? Yeah, well, I actually ended up doing a, a master's degree in pest management after having done a bachelor's degree in biology because I've always been very interested in insects. So I ended up looking at how to um, best manage insects, but I didn't want to go into a career killing insects. So I volunteered um, at the... Um, request of a friend um i volunteered at friends of the earth for a few months in london and i was lucky i could live just outside london with my parents i was very lucky i realized that but that led to a job at friends of the earth and i haven't actually looked back since (laughs) i've been in the environment movement ever since and that was in 1990 so it's a it's i've been doing it a long time but because of um my background in pest management and insects i i ended up working for an organization called Sustainable Agriculture, Food and Environment Alliance. Um, I ended up running that organisation and that was looking at farming and food policy and particularly the Common Agricultural Policy, which is the European wide policy which supports farmers and directs production to a certain extent. So I've done a lot of work on that and then I've done a lot of work on 
what people eat and a lot of work on sort of the environmental impacts of farm systems globally um, and particularly livestock. Mm-hmm. So over the years, I've gone in and out of various organisations, worked at a local all the way to the UN, even done a couple of presentations in the UN, which was quite um, interesting. <laughs> but yeah. uh, I didn't, didn't like flying there because I don't think flying is a good thing. But uh, <laughs> it was fascinating to be at that, that kind of uh, forum where making decisions is incredibly hard. Yeah, 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 for sure. We've had uh, we had some feedbacks from that forum. Um, Joanna Haig, who we interviewed a, a few weeks ago, who's a, a lead author uh, on the AR three. Um, oh, right. Yeah, she she was telling us of the kind of how how many reviews there have to be and and the the bureaucracy kind of behind UN uh, papers and, mm-hmm. and such. It does mean it mean that when they come out, they've got a whole heap of authority behind them. Like the one sure, that came out sure. um, on on land and climate, which was a, cr- a critical one for me. You know, we've been waiting for the um, UN International Panel on Climate Change to come up with work on land and agriculture for many, many years. When it finally did, obviously, it was very difficult, but it said a lot of the right things. Yeah. And so you were a senior campaigner for Friends of the Earth? Yes, yes. I... I Worked at Friends of the Earth for a while as a, a sort of assistant role um, and editorial role. Then I left for several years and then came back as head of the um, food team and senior campaigner. So I was right. running a team of staff um, looking at various different aspects of the food system, including genetically modified food that was coming in. We were looking at pesticides and we were looking very critically at the um, rise and rise of the big multiple retailers and the squeeze that these big supermarkets make on on the primary producers and you know, the farmers and the growers and the impact that had on what they could do on their farm to protect the environment or protect animals. Um, and so we had a number of campaigns at Friends of the Earth and I was sort of helping deliver on those. So do you think your, um, your career at uh, Friends of the Earth, do you think that was a kind of transitory period in like you developing your interests into the interests you have now or do you think you you sort of or, or do you think that was the time no it was pivotal i mean going there for the okay. first time back in 1990 was was incredibly powerful back then we you know we had no internet we had no emails mm. we were doing everything you know stapling bits of paper together at two o'clock in the morning you know it was quite some um, gritty exciting stuff and trying to get people to um change policies through writing letters and and doing all sorts of things different now but very exciting and i i was very lucky to meet some incredibly powerful experienced and knowledgeable campaigners um and that for anybody wherever you work if if you meet very good people who are also kind um so good at their jobs but kind to their staff or their volunteers then that can be pivotal and it was for me yeah so so i was lucky Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I wonder how um, how you feel about working on all these organizations, because I see that you've also worked in uh, War on Want. War on Want, yeah. Yeah, and you've also been a, an independent um, a consultant for, for, the, yeah. for all kinds of matters on, on food and agriculture. Um, yes. So I want to get a little bit talking about your personal experience working in these organizations. We I think we see a lot of um, maybe friends and family or... or people that we we meet in different circumstances that work for let's say friends of the earth but in a more uh, volunteer kind of 
way, yes. right? I think it's, at least for me personally, it's quite rare to meet someone who works for one of these organizations um, for a living. Right, yeah. So I, I'm wondering what is it like to, to work for these organizations uh, as, as a job, really? Yeah, well, I did volunteer there full time for about eight months before I got a job there. Um, but I also do volunteering work in, in organizations, so I do both. But working in those organizations, it does depend on the organization. And I, I've been very lucky to work, I think, Friends of the Earth, the um, values that staff hold, um, both in terms of environmental issues, but also justice and the, wealth, the well-being of, of humanity, rather than purely very narrow green agenda for me was very powerful and, and uh, instrumental in me going where I went, um, for instance, to War on Want, which is an organization that's very much uh, about showing how poverty is a, is a political decision to, to allow poverty. And a lot of poverty is caused by the um, uh, damage to the environment, environment on which people depend for their lives or for their well-being or for their health. Um, and workers being abused is part of an, you know, a degradation, which is also about environmental degradation because the environment's being abused as well. All part of the same picture. And that came from work of Friends of the Earth. Um, I've also worked in small, small NGOs and Safe Alliance. The first one was, was quite a small one. I ended up running it and it was about six staff. Right. And so that's very, very different. Very, you, you can very much control what, what happens and you don't have to have lots of internal meetings. I think one of the downsides of working in these organizations is they tend to have a lot of internal meetings and internal comms and processes, which mm -hmm. when you're working in a small one, it's not so bad. Or when you're working as a volunteer, you can you know, dictate partly how much, how much bureaucracy you, you cope with. So, but I want, one time I did work for a very big international animal welfare organization. Um, and through that, I ended up working in the UN and that was, very different and very very affluent and i found that quite strange affluent yeah. sorry can you can you expand on that just the... we had a lot of money had a lot of money to to work on the projects it was working on and a friends right. of the earth we never had enough money um, <laughs> most, most yeah. places i've worked have been you know relatively poor yeah. i've never done any job for the, for the salary that's for sure but yeah. that's at the big animal welfare organization it was strange to see how much money was available to, to do things like flying to new york to be honest um, yeah but we were okay. doing we were trying to get some good changes to um un policies and therefore mm -hmm. it was worth doing but yeah i guess when maybe when you go up in scale these kind mm -hmm. of expenses seem a bit um i guess relatively small compared to the changes that you can make on on that big of a scale absolutely maybe. and they're tiny compared to what the um corporations that are driving these in the wrong direction spend you know yeah <laughs> but, you know, it's pittance yeah. compared to what monsanto will be spending on a daily basis lobbying against the rules that we need for instance you know so, so it's yeah. it's it's kind of it's very interesting how you've been um campaigning on like very different political levels you know like the, the national domestic and then up um part, partly in the the un um like mm -hmm. what do you think is the most from your experience the most effective approach almost to solve solving yeah. issues or do you think it's yeah. like kind of <laughs> it's a really good um, question yeah. yeah i think i think they i mean i do them all because they are all important but i do believe now that what we need is very strong movements 
for change. Um, mm. Purely trying to work through um, lobbying inside a track, as you would call it, you know, being inside the room and, and um, nudging politicians to do the right thing, to write the right sentence in the right document. That can actually be powerful, but we, we spent two years getting a document at the UN to say the right thing. I can even name the paragraphs of the zero documents that came out. And it didn't lead enough to, to what we need because the forces against the changes that we want are so huge. You know, the, the, the amount of money and business invested in very intensive farming systems, particularly livestock systems, the money is staggering. And it means that cheap is very meat is very cheap in the shops really but it has a huge cost to society but they they make a lot of money out of it as well and and so to counter that you need movements you need a lot of people caring enough to make the change so that can only happen at a local an individual and family and friends level as well as at a, as a national level so i've been really heartened by extinction rebellion and the um climate strikes and all, all the local activities that people do but they do need to join up more to make a difference and to, to recognize they've got to get political because it's a yeah. political mm. I mean, um, I, I, I guess to, to someone like me who doesn't really know what forces are, are against um, such such movements, yeah. I wonder, um, is it, I mean, it's, it's always going to be at least a bit of both, but would you say it's more of a matter of people generally not knowing and not being able to mobilize or would you say it's more of these industries having like the organized resistance mm. against such movements? Um, that's so is, a good is there already well. is there yeah. already like popular pressure, but it's being resisted, or is there not enough popular pressure? I think there isn't enough popular pressure. I think there's a certain amount of passivity, and there is also the way in which society has been led towards, but through advertising and marketing towards a, a sense of well-being that's about what you've got and and self-worth being constantly challenged by advertising and marketing it leads to people not feeling they can do much um, but mm. you know, getting people to have the willpower to, to get knowledgeable and then get active is quite hard and people are stressed and they you know they don't earn enough necessarily because you know a lot of people don't earn enough and the wages is part of the political issue as well which stops people doing what they need to do either in terms of what they buy or in terms of getting involved politically you know the thought of having two jobs feeding your kids when you come back yeah, from work yeah. and then and then writing letters to your MP that's tricky but at the same time there is this huge huge um, machine behind keeping the status quo and making sure rules don't get stronger to protect the environment or protect people's health so yeah it's a, it's a bit of both and I think one leads to the other as well. You know, I think marketing and advertising of products is a big, big area we've not really touched enough yet. Yeah, it's. I, I suppose it's quite clear to see how um, it, industry sort of pre um, prevents these movements having uh, a lot as large effect as they could. But do you do you think um, you know such, such key people in industries? Do you think they have a role in stopping people? it's it's hard to say so there's already the people mobilized trying to make change in which they resist do you think they try to stop people mobilizing at all and or i mean is that just something they could want but couldn't really achieve i think they're more likely to stop uh, politicians making the changes that are needed or um 
other parts of industry making the changes needed um, because they they'll be very much working behind the scenes and lobbying behind the scenes taking people out to lunch in brussels or, or in new york or, or whatever and that you know the power of that lobby is extreme i've just written a book actually about invertebrates and it's all about invertebrates but there's a whole chapter about power and people might find it a bit odd they're reading a book about invertebrates um and then reading about power but it is a lot to do with what power they have behind the scenes so um i think you know even however much extinction rebellion is shouting on the streets and, and doing things it's quite hard if politicians aren't are actually being lobbied on the other side saying we understand what xr is saying we're, we're doing our bit you know we're, we're recycling our paper in our head offices or whatever i'm yeah. being slightly flippant there but you know they the business model for a lot of businesses is part of the problem and they can't change their model without changing how much they extract from the system yeah you said um you said we need to realize that that it is political or um, sorry i'm paraphrasing but you said something yeah. along those lines um do you think that groups like XR, which you know, Jamie and I have been in, in some ways involved with in the past as well, um, do you think groups like XR need to abandon this sort of um, idea that that change can be apolitical, that, that we, we should try and capture as many people, supporters mm -hmm. as possible without kind of going to the politics? Because XR doesn't endorse yeah. any, any political yeah. party. When I, yeah, when I say po political, I mean political, I don't mean party political. Yeah. But at the yeah, same yeah. time, at the same time, I think XR is very much based, I believe, based on justice. Mm -hmm. And you could def define some parties that, you know, across the globe who aren't particularly interested in justice and, and a redistribution of wealth and a fair distribution of resources and the planet, et cetera, et cetera. So in that sense, the, the policies and the politics that come from that need to be addressed. I, I don't think we're going to get anywhere if we don't start to, to address those. I, I really don't. That doesn't mean to say everybody's got to be party political, but we've got to be political. And, and it, you know, whether you're on the right or left, if you believe that the environment is being damaged by certain policies, you should be doing something about it, whatever party you're from. Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's always... Um strikes me how how some parties uh, not just in the uk but around the world can be so just so against environmental concerns and regulations just for the sake of being against it i mean i don't know yeah. i don't really understand this idea of being against the environment it's uh, it, it boggles yeah. my mind a yeah. little well they don't value it do they i, I when i yeah. say value I, I you could be talking financial value and that that does work for many people sadly but they don't value it because if they've done, for instance, an economics degree, you know, it will be drilled into them, you know, what you have to account for. And it's, it's mm. not the environment. Mm. You know, you don't account for, for this finite resource, which we've been plundering, partly because the economics is very old style, mostly. Uh, you know, I've been very encouraged to see new economics being um, the, a big push for students and pupils to learn new economics. The new economics thing does take account of the finite resources and fair shares, et cetera, et cetera. That's, that's beginning to grow. It's not nearly enough. And the yeah. people who were in charge were trained in the old economics, which said there's infinite growth on this planet and we can right. plunder it. Yeah. Yeah. Did, did, you, did you feel listened to um, when you were part of these organizations? I saw you on the CNN interview um, that oh, aired gosh, some, that some years ago. 
yeah. I think I think mm-hmm. 12, 12 years ago. Um, wow. But it, yeah, yeah, but it was um, it, it was really interesting. I actually really liked your your uh, responses on that because it felt like the same kind of um, well, no offense to the CNN host, but drivel that you usually <laughs> hear. Um, you know, I think he he asked you he asked you about industrial farming and how um, how are we supposed to feed the world then because we need industrial yes, farming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm finding like, wow, you know, I was, I was, I was really surprised. I'm finding these same points of, of conversation yes. 12 years still ago. Being that, yeah. Yeah. Still being told to, even though the UN says that 75% of food comes from small farms. It's like, yes. How, and we and okay, we right. we throw away thirty five to forty percent of the food either lost <laughs> yeah. in transit or throw exactly. away. No, yeah. we, but the feed we need this to feed the planet is is a really strong argument from the, from the big ag, the big seed, the big patent companies mm-hmm. holding patent, the big chemical companies. We need these things to feed the world. Is absolutely the line they love, and they will yeah. use it and they will plug it wherever they can. And as you have found quite rightly, <laughs> it's still being used. <laughs> I, I guess they can. They I guess they can more, way more easily induce a fear of poverty. Yeah, For, yeah. When food gets on the agenda in in Parliament, it gets on the agenda. If there's any suggestion that food prices are going to go up. That's the only time it really, yeah. get, it really yeah. gets MPs active, as you've seen with the, the food um, banks thing. It gets them all talking about yeah. it. It doesn't get them actually addressing the underlying causes of food banks. It just gets them talking about cheap food, because we need cheap yeah. food. But my, my, uh, my underlying question, I guess, for, for this is more, uh, how, how does it feel to, to be in this kind of constant fight over years? Because I guess Jamie and I have just started, you know, um, we've, I think personally, I've been in environmental... Uh, concerned with environmental issues for maybe two, three years, max, like properly concerned, I'd say, and, and doing something about it. Um, but I, I guess my question is how, how do you feel kind of being in, in these maybe constant debates and do you feel listened to by uh, when you're at, in these organizations, do you feel listened to by people, by government? Do you see things change? Yeah. I, d- I do see things change, but I can understand your your um, question. I mean, I've had thirty years, and I can see some things that haven't changed, and that's that's depressing. Mm-hmm. I, I've failed. I have failed in my quest to to get a sustainable farming system. I do know that these things take a long time. I mean, one law that I was working on to try and get the law changed to make supermarkets play fairer that took eight years, and wow. and the final law. I mean, and it's quite unusual to actually feel like you've been responsible for getting a lot wasn't just me but it was a very big part yeah. of my campaign to get a new law it, it isn't good enough even then but it was a step um so mm-hmm. i feel that was progress made but i think we're in a different period now we're in a period where we've really got to go faster and if it, you know if we don't go faster we're you know we're, we're already up you know can i say it shit creek if, if possible. Yeah. Um, we don't we don't have any uh, advertisers yet don't worry <laughs> we are so we've got to do do things much faster so in that, that sense i'm a bit worried but to be honest it's very inspiring working on something which is so important for 30 years and with the kind of people that you end up working with um very very passionate and caring people in in my profession so it's 30 years of working with a great bunch of people including especially including the volunteers i used to get a huge amount of, um, uh, what's the word, um, 
energized and inspired by the um, voluntary groups, Friends of the Earth, um, local groups network, which were doing amazing things at a local level. Some of them were planning experts, some of them were experts in ecology. They were doing incredible things as, as volunteers at a local level. And we'd meet during the year, but we'd have one big gathering every year. And I would always cry when I'd hear them talk. It was so inspiring. Brilliant people and, and very, very effective at trying to toe the line at a local level on like for instance unsustainable development or pollution issues or just educating children you know about the environment you know they were doing brilliant stuff so it's kind of been inspiring but i do the other thing that's helped is i've done other things as well like consultancy work which has just been doing research which i find very interesting i've never stopped being a scientist yeah. i think and i've also written a couple of books and that's always fun to do yeah yeah no for sure and and on the on the topic of um of children and kind of future generations uh, I guess that's that's something personally I see as uh, energizing um, in my kind of days when I'm maybe a bit more f- feeling a bit more down about things. Mm-hmm. You know, when I when I give in to these realizations that maybe things are a bit hopeless, and then and I see people like uh, you know my my siblings who are you know, who are very young and and already at that age thinking in a way that's quite eco-minded and mm. and thinking about injustices and and it just i don't know it gives you this hopeful spirit that yes. maybe that does absolutely yeah. give you hope yeah. maybe and if also our generation their, isn't it then theirs will <laughs> i'm sure your generation is but i hope also that they're slightly immune to the uh, marketing and advertising and the subtle stuff that goes on to try and influence their choices I have two sons and I feel they're quite immune to that stuff because they've, maybe it's me, but other people have sort of shown them that you don't need stuff to be happy. You need people and experiences and all that kind of thing. So hopefully that's, that is getting through as well. Um, but yeah, I think there is hope there. And, and you've seen that in the way the younger generation have, have embraced a different diet. It's definitely yeah, when you yeah. look at all the surveys, um, younger oh, generation, right. younger people of, of eating less and better meat. And I think that's absolutely crucial. There's one thing in the food system that's totally unsustainable. It's intensive factory farmed meat and it's growing still across the globe. But yeah. some communities are beginning to, to move away from that. And that's a good thing. It needs to go yeah. faster. I think I think the, the underlying message of all this, for me at least in my own uh, personal experience, has been that you need to change the to change the architecture of the system for people to to make these choices themselves i've i see people around me like um, family and friends that have completely changed their diets when um, opportunities have presented themselves to them to make these changes more easily cheaply and and in ways that like no one wants to eat badly no one i don't think anyone wants to like consciously wants to eat things that are bad for them i think most of the time they either don't realize the full extent of what they're eating and also well, sometimes they're blocked by things like prices like yes. um, how easy like food deserts in the, in the u.s for example you know how easily it is, easy it is to get food that is healthy for you yeah so i i've read a couple of um articles you've written uh, about the food industry and about um personal diets um and i think it's very interesting i guess, I guess i'll uh, we could just start with a question, I suppose. Um, yeah. So in your articles about uh, forest fires in South America, all food has an environmental impact. You 
say about how locals are displaced from their land, um, Indonesian peatland is destroyed, rainforests are destroyed to create cattle ranches and soy monoculture. Um, mm. Do you think people would consume differently if they knew the impact of their food? Well, I, I know they do. Um, when I okay. first started working on, on livestock, we, I wanted to introduce a livestock campaign to Friends of the Earth, and it actually took me two years because they were very worried about whether it was the right campaign and whether it, people just wouldn't respond because it's such a personal thing, what you eat. It, it's very, very personal, very emotional issue. Um, and we, so we did some focus group works with people to ask them about what they knew about this, and, and we talked about and had visuals talking about Sawyer and, and rainforests and, and most people have no idea and they said yeah I'm going to eat differently after this or, you know I'll only eat yeah. pasture foods and things like that so people don't know and they still don't know even though that, that was actually 10 years ago that I did those focus group works and we, we led a campaign to try and get a new parliamentary bill through about livestock but now people are more people are aware but I still think it's it, a lot of people aren't or they think they're changing their diet will not make much difference um and i think what we've got to do is is have more awareness and more understanding but more choices you, you know you talked about the architecture of of what, what people can choose and that's really important that they have the low meat or no meat choices available to them and that they're affordable and that they're healthy um one thing that we found is a lot of vegan foods now are very heavily processed or ultra processed that's not necessarily a healthy option either right so, so obviously that there, there are there is an alternative um a greener form of a global food industry yeah. um mm. but i i don't know what that would look like mm. personally um i mean yeah. do you, do you have an idea of more sustainable uh and perhaps healthier a he healthier yeah. global uh, a form of a global global food industry the food system yeah I mean, the thing is, food is, is very specific to different regions, you know, and each region, even, even sort of particularly lo local diets are very specific. So there isn't one diet that fits all um, no. or one system that would fit one, you know, climate and topography and ecology. But diversity is key. I think what we've invested in is incredibly um, uniform monoculture systems globally. A lot to do with commodities to make money rather than to feed people. Um, whereas what really does feed people well is, is a diverse, sustainable farming system. And it can be incredibly productive. The idea that organic does have a slight yield gap, but sometimes that yield gap goes completely once the organic system is embedded and the, um, the soil is regenerated and able to actually um, provide the right nutrients for the plants, you can lose the yield gap, you get just as much food, but you get different food, you get more diverse food um, and uh, less but better meat. In, in a farming system globally, I would say it would be a mixed farming system with a lot of fruit, nuts and pulses and a bit of meat and using any waste products to feed animals rather than crops. Mm -hmm. um, and having, if you've got grass, you know, and, it, and you don't need to do something else on that, that grass, some animals is perfectly viable. So if I was thinking of the whole global food system, it would be something like that, a really diverse mixed farm system, where also the farmers are paid adequately for what yes. they're doing. <laughs> um, well, we, we, can, we can get into that, onto that into a minute. Um, but would you, because you, you were talking about um, 
kind of local sources of food. So you said how a, a diversified system would be good. Do you think, it, what do you think of the part of the system that is, you know, kind of large concentrated areas of food production uh, uh, exported to, you know, very different areas of the world? Or do you think it would be better if, it, if food production was more localized to the people who are eating it, uh, consuming it? Yeah. Well, it's actually, it yeah. I think there is um, what you could describe as sort of zones system where the food that is most appropriate to produce near to market should be produced near to market. Things like perishable products, salads, fruits, veg mm. that go off should be produced near as possible, which is difficult given that we all live in urban areas. But I think there should be a renaissance in market gardens. So producing a lot of good fruit, fresh fruit and vegetables and leafy greens near to market. So then you can have um, commodities, wheat and, and other things. And then even further. So there's the zones idea. Yeah, the zones idea is sort of producing what's best closest to market. And so the leafy vegetables and fruit closest to market where they're not going to lose their nutritional content. And then as you go out, things, you know, are more processed, like your grains milled in, you know, in rural areas. They need to be, you know, large areas to produce them. But you can just still produce diverse products like you don't. The idea that we need one single variety of wheat is you know is now everywhere one single variety we should be using lots of varieties of wheat and and you know having an ability to cope with that in our bread producing systems at the moment we just use very very small small genetic um, lines a very small number of um, breeds for most of our food whereas is, we is that be because it's cheaper than is that why it's uh, it it's, it's cheaper it fits yeah it fits the processes that have been developed to um, produce mass-produced food very mm -hmm. very cheaply there's something called the Chorleywood process which is what is used to produce bread sliced white bread and it's incredibly efficient but not very healthy process of producing bread but it requires a very high specification of, of flour um, right. and there is there are farmers developing much better more diverse um, cropping systems for wheat which will produce a different kind of flour which have to be used differently um, yeah. But it's perfectly possible to do that. And that also means the farming system isn't a monoculture and you can get yeah. insects and birds and variety and it doesn't need so much chemical. If you've got more variety, you don't need so much chemicals because when you've got a monoculture, you need to drench it basically to stop the very, very clever insects and diseases from just yeah. taking yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. There's something that, that struck me a lot when I've been researching food and um, for example, watching like documentaries on it, um, such as I, I don't know if you've watched documentary, the French one from Cyril Dion uh, called uh, Demain Tomorrow. Oh no, I haven't seen it yet. No. I keep meaning to. It's terrible. Yeah. I, I've it's, heard it's great. It's yeah. absolutely yeah. amazing. Yeah, it's my favorite documentary uh, of I all will time. Watch I think. It. Yeah, I should it's, watch uh, it. Yeah. There's a whole chapter of documentary on on agriculture and food, and he yeah. he debunks this kind of notion that um, agriculture, like intense intense agro and, and big agro is the way forward that we have this kind of uh, counterintuitive way of thinking that if we just make things manufacture things in a factory kind of way then we will have more of it and and he actually kind of shows that by doing things like permaculture you can you can actually have more on less land and yeah. of better exactly. quality as well without draining yeah. the land 
But how? Yeah, it's amazing the idea that it's seen as hugely efficient. It's yeah. efficient by one very narrow set of parameters. Yeah. It's, not efficient, it's not efficient in many, many others. Yeah. Yeah. How, how do we how do we do debunk this then? How do, how well, can we? It, interestingly, in Europe, you know, it's, it's there's a lot of really good campaigns. You've now got your farm to fork strategy in in Brussels. In, in the commission launched, which is aiming for 25% organic. It's fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, and the other 75%, you know, ideally using integrated pest management or no pesticides, ideally. So there's, a, you know, there's been a big campaign that's having an impact um, and debunking that myth. The problem, the problem is that the systems which take the produce, like that Chorleywood process I was telling you about, the big companies, the big factories, they're incredibly um, expensive to put up and maintain and the investment gone into those systems, which are very centralized, they are demanding that uniform monoculture. So, you know, there's a lot to change that. And I, I'm working on how we do that, how we invest in the kind of smaller scale manufacturing, storing, milling, abattoirs, smaller scale abattoirs. We've lost most of our abattoirs in the UK. Yeah. Um, you know, so all the animals have to go a very long way to very huge abattoirs. That's that's catastrophic, um, not least in terms of stress for the animals and disease. But, you know, it's seen as very efficient and uh, healthy, hygienic. But actually, in reality, it was the wrong way to go. So we need to reinvest and we're campaigning for that. And we have yeah. the opportunity. We have this agriculture bill. Which no, we're why, trying to why do you think yeah. it's um, what, something that interests me is, is always if there are better alternatives, why is it that we're not? going for them I mean, would you attribute this to pure kind of profit motive um because you know if, if people prove that you can make more money off of less land using permaculture mm -hmm. i'm interested personally in why people don't choose that then and you know why why do we keep at it this this kind of stupid idea that we have to intensely monoculture uh, a single piece of land until it dries up and can't mm -hmm. give us anything i think that's probably because most people aren't farming so they they're taking their produce yeah. from from the retailers who they trust you know with mm. a, with a big t and it's incredible and they've been let you know been encouraged to trust the retail that they've gone gone to for for many decades and that retail has driven the monoculture farming systems so what we need is an alternative system of retail and trading so people can and people of all incomes can actually accept, access food as direct from the farmer as possible but also they need the means to to cook food and to to, to be able to take the produce more diverse produce and cook with it and and a lot of we have a lot of schemes in the uk like call them veggie box schemes people get their food direct from the farmer or or very nearly direct and they get a bag of vegetables and they have to cook with them every week and it's to do with seasons and it's you know big variety back so it's a big learning curve you know, mm -hmm. I didn't know what to do with quite a lot of the leafy greens and I didn't really like them, if I'm honest, when I started them <laughs> in my bag. But, you know, it's a, it's a process of sharing. It's sharing the produce from the land and making do without the, you know, the constant variety that you get from these huge greenhouses in Spain, which use migrant labor very badly. You know, it's, it's, it's like making do with different produce, not, not mm -hmm. the cornucopia you get in, when you go into the supermarkets now. That there's such big implications from those big yeah. corporations. Mm. Well, well, mo moving on to um, the kind of exploitation of farmers. Um, I mean, there is a lot to say about how workers and generals are underpaid and uh, mistreated. 
Uh, but do you think that um, farmers, given, given that it's also kind of a physical labour as opposed to more service-based labour, do you, do you think it's kind of a unique for or like the, the way in which they are exploited or underpaid is um, unique? Um, well, I think, I don't know if it's unique, I think there's other sectors where people are underpaid and exploited and, and basically modern slavery is very um, uh, prevalent nowadays. I think it's a really bad indictment of modern society, that, that's true. But in farming, because they're so remote, um, often workers and indeed farmers are, you know, it's not seen what's happening to them and therefore um, you know, you don't necessarily get enough inspections um, from the sort of um, departments that oversee um, health and safety or worker treatment or wages, you know, so that I think in the UK you're likely to get an inspection from the um, employment um, bodies only about every 250 years on average. <laughs> so you're not going to worry about being right. inspected. And, that, and that's talking about workers, you know, employees as opposed to farmers. But I think a lot of farmers really struggle with the kind of returns they get mm -hmm. as well from the marketplace and they will um, be struggling. Um, so I think it's a particular sector where this is is a problem, partly because it's so concentrated in the middle. The supermarkets are so concentrated. They have such power um, which is why I've focused yeah. on that for a lot of my career, trying to to take away that power. What What do you think's stopping a, a person just starting their own local organic farming business to provide for local communities? Land uh, is it hard to compete? Land. Land, yes. Access yeah. to land is, is a big issue. Land is is always you know towards ever thus. Land is is one of the most politically um charged issues and and has been for millennia so that's not surprising but we have an incredibly inequitable land distribution in in england in particular also in scotland um but it's also true everywhere getting access to land but also mm. access to the training um that you need to, to do farming that's that's probably going to be an issue but we have a fantastic organization in in england called the land workers alliance which is helping people who want to get access to land and want to learn how to farm sustainably and, and sell produce directly and they're doing a lot and they're doing a lot of amazing stuff and they're driving a lot of policy interest in people having new entrants having access to land and access to the means to produce food and one of the ways they're doing it is trying to persuade farmers who've got land that they are willing to share with new oh, entrants right. so that's one option yeah that, that, that sounds great um yeah. and and potentially like a, a way forward what do you think of yes. uh, groups like um incredible edible um which uh, so just for our listeners who might not know what uh, incredible edible is it's um a movement of i i don't really know how to explain it, how to qualify uh, maybe gorilla Gorilla planting, of, of yeah. gorilla gardening. Yeah, yeah. Um, I believe that's one of the ways they use to describe themselves. Mm -hmm. um, they basically are taking over public spaces for um, planting food. Um, oh wow! Plants without really requesting permits and such. So, for example, um, that's cool. They will just <laughs> yeah. yeah for, so, for example, they'll create this sort of box of. Uh, put soil in it and just put it in front of the train station in an empty yeah. <laughs> because we have so many so so much empty space in our cities and yeah. our towns 
that we yeah. don't use. So why not grow food on it? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah, and they also see themselves as building communities. You know, it's building communities mm -hmm. through food growing. So you know, strange liaisons happen. You know, you get the fire state. You know, fire station building food plantations in their their front. You know, in in the space they have and things like that. So it's very exciting, um, and very good way of connecting people with the food that they eat. Um, I think, and it's very much from the ground up. So um, the idea that that's coming from top down from some big NGO that's not that's not it. It's very much yeah. from the ground. Up. I think mm -hmm. it's really exciting. The other exciting movement is the community supported agriculture CSAs, where people um, uh, grow on land that's been given or rented from a farmer and okay. share in the proceeds, but also share in the work. Um, and there are a lot of those across the UK um, doing, they're growing now. And people learn how to grow food, they learn how food is grown. Um, and farmers often get a lot from it as well because they are interacting with the their local community in ways that they weren't before. Um, I visited one quite recently and the, the produce that they had was incredible and it was so diverse and the farmer originally rented the land out and I think he eventually sold it to the community in the, in the area and got a huge amount of pleasure from what from that from doing that yeah. and that can be incredibly powerful and they get a huge amount of food every week mm -hmm. from those plots so um, does the does the community consume its own food or, or is this yes. more like a cooperative that sells so it it, it consumes all the food yeah yeah, uh, people are them, free during, yeah, yeah, but during COVID, they've been doing a lot of support for people on um, who've been severely vulnerable to food mm. access, you know, lack of access to food. I know a lot of community supported agriculture and veggie box schemes that have been specifically targeting, you know, people who can't get to shops, things like that, or people haven't got the money. They've been doing amazing work. And we've documented a lot of that on the Sustain website. Um, yeah. Some amazing stuff going on. And maybe uh, we can... Yeah, maybe we can talk about um, sustain in more detail because that's your current work. Um, yes. Can you explain to us uh, and our listeners a little bit what sustain is as an organization yeah. and what your role is in it as yeah. well? Well, sustain, I actually founded sustain because I merged right. the organization that I was running, which is mm -hmm. the Sustainable Agriculture Food and Environment Alliance, with another organization called the National Food Alliance in 2000. Mm -hmm. And we merged it to create this alliance. So to be stronger than the individual individual members and to work collaboratively on projects and campaigns and have more strength by being together than separate. And, and also recognizing the fact that the food system is so complex and there's so many different stakeholders. If, if we keep working on individual single issues, we're not going to get the changes we need. It's a system and we need to work it like a system. So you've got consumer groups, you've got um, research institutes, you've got farmer groups, conservation, environmental, animal welfare groups and unions. And it's about over 100 organisations that are member now. And so I left in 2004, um, after I'd set it up and it was doing good campaigns on all, all sorts of things. Um, and then I left to go to Friends of the Earth and I came back um, four years ago when Brexit happened. Um, because it was an opportunity to really um, potentially get a really groundbreaking food and farming system in the UK. Um, I'd worked on the common agricultural policy for many years and it has its strengths but also its weaknesses and we could push for the UK to be a pioneer in a, in a whole new way of supporting farming that's sustainable and fair. So that was it as an opportunity. 
yeah. It's a it's a great organisation and uh, yeah, it's it's quite small, so it's quite nimble, fleet of foot, and doing what it needs to do when it needs to do it. So it's, it doesn't bog itself down with lots of internal processes. Yeah. In terms of uh, personal experience, because you you said you've had decades now, I, I wonder what what the sort of or some of the lessons you can share with us that, that you've learned through the years. Maybe some of the the bigger bigger things you've learned. I suppose one of the biggest things I've I've learned is about not as a, what I was saying, not trying to solve one single issue. I mean, it's maybe particular to farming, but you can't. You, you know, if you solve one thing, another thing pops up to to hit you on the head. You know, you you've really got to think in systems, and that's really true in any environmental issue yeah, or sustainability yeah. issue. It's a system, and we've got to think of it as a system. Um, and the other thing is, I would say, take risks. I, you know, I've taken some risks with campaigns and with my career. You know, I've I've uh, resigned to, from things that were going well in order to make a point or to try something new. Right. And so, taking risks is, is always difficult, and I think it's probably harder for a younger generation. Um, you know, you, housing is so expensive, and all, you know, it's so hard for for you. I was yeah. lucky. I was lucky. I, I will be honest. It, it was okay for me to take those choices. Not always a choice people able to take. But I would say, don't get sucked into a career if you're not happy with it. Um, yeah. So take take those risks. Mm. I wonder with the the kind of challenges, the the bigger challenges that you face as well, because you've you said you've worked on the local, national, and international level. Um, would you say that the would you qualify the opposition that you receive to your ideas and your work on those three scales kind of to be similar or are they quite different in nature? I think at a local level, so if we're talking about sort of a, a county or, you know, community level, it's no, it, it's very much about um, the lack of uh, agency that communities mm -hmm. or individuals have to change things. We have a planning system in, in the UK, which does allow people to have a say and that's been eroded by our government and that's terrible so that's you know lack of agency is to the government wanting to give industry free-for-all on what's done and that that's not good people having a say in their environment is really really important it's fundamental um but also local authorities not having the money to do what they need to do you know yeah. they've been since, since 2008 austerity has hit and it's hit hard so not being able to do the things that a local authority knows its community needed is, is hard at a national level you've got governments that are influenced as we were talking about by lobbying of, of big business and and also um not seeing the bigger picture not recognizing the environment as being such a crucial issue i think they're coming around to that now because it's basically our home. <laughs> We're <laughs> destroying our home and they're starting yeah. to realise that. Amazingly, it's taken far too long, you know. Um, but nationally, you do have very big forces. You have huge international commodity um, trading bodies, which are incredibly powerful, incredibly um, rich. And they're often owned by asset management companies, management companies, these mm -hmm. invisible companies that use their money to make more money on something that shouldn't really be making money it should be the money should be going to the farmers you know that if i can put it that simply it's not that simple but these large trading commodity companies are 
extremely powerful and they hold the patents on the gene genetic resources that mm. farmers use. Yeah. They, mm -hmm. they, you know, hold the lobbying strings in Brussels or in yeah. DC. Yeah, one of the so books that one of the books that's um, influenced me, I think, quite a bit has been uh, "Biopiracy" from Vandana Shiva. Um, she's good, yeah. She, yeah. yeah she, she's great. Um, I, I never understood, I think, the issues with uh, with intellectual property rights until I read her book. Yeah, um, amazing that farmers aren't, you know, can't save their seed if they've bought into a. a particular seed from a company and seed saving is is fundamental farmers should be able to mm -hmm. save their seed and choose their seed you know what they use yeah. and not be sued for uh for their yes. seeds being blown by the wind into a neighbor's yes. farm. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> exactly yeah and some of this is really i mean it's driving farmers to suicide you know it's it's not just an ap yeah. apocryphal yeah. in you know and vandana is talking about suicides in india they have mm -hmm. risen enormously as a result of farmers being locked into a treadmill of, of chemicals and seeds it's yeah. terrible yeah um i i think a lot of farmers not only feel the the blunt kind of of uh of of season and ipas ipos i mean but also um maybe of of being demonized in some ways i think yeah. that's one of the yeah. shortcomings of um mm -hmm of environmental movements i see at least uh, in a lot of places is that we seem to make farmers out to be people who bad guys. Mm. yeah the bad guys yeah um and especially you know people like uh, butchers and 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 people who mm. grow cattle and such because i i think there, there's a lot of debate still to be had although personally i think the science is quite clear that meat uh, about the the role of meat in our diets but i think that we've demonized um the people who who take care of that who grow that for us to a point where they feel alienated from any environmental movements um i've spoken to some people who raise cattle and and you know anytime that you say you're environmentalist they just scoff yeah. at you because they think you're going to call them evil and and that you're just going to tell them that they're destroying the planet with their cows um I love that's something that you've seen in your own work. Yeah, absolutely. And I've tried very hard in my work to never do that. And um, certainly I wouldn't be demonizing farmers, majority farmers. I, I think there's slight difference. I wouldn't demonize anybody, but with um, in very intensive factory farming, like entirely housed pigs and poultry, I find it hard to consider those as sort of farming per se, mm -hmm. because, but even there, those farmers are often locked into a system which is, dictated particularly in america um dictated by the the people who are buying the produce and often they're just workers for tyson or one of the big you know meat companies that then process the produce using very cheap labor and sell it to sell it on to consumer i think farmers are, are often very much caught in the same system that consumers are um and it's sad if if they're being demonized by the consumers i, I think we that's why i think an alternative system is, is vital um whether we're going to achieve it or not i don't know but you know to to rely on the supermarkets to provide the right kind of messages to consumers and for consumers to sort of realize farmers are actually in you know as much a bind as they are it, it, it's quite difficult so we need alternatives you know where farmers and consumers are better better connected so they understand each other and i think campaigns I, what was brilliant about the um extinction rebellion in the uk we had an extinction rebellion farmers 
Yeah. And that yeah. they, they brought their tractor to London and they talked to people and they voiced their concerns. And, you know, they, we, we have a big farming conference every year in Oxford and they came and picketed outside the farming conference. But the farmers were just chatting to them and they got on really well. They understood yeah. each other. You know, yeah. the, the Extinction Rebellion understood the pressures the farmers were under and the farmers understood what Extinction Rebellion was trying to do. So mm -hmm. it was actually a very positive moment, I think. Um, but at the same time, there are some things that do need to change, and that's hard for farmers to accept. Like neonicotinoid pesticides is a big problem, which is a, a, a pesticide which is used on a lot of crops and is very harmful to bees and other, other wildlife, really harmful. And the science is there, but farmers have relied on it you know, for quite a long time, and it's very effective. So they're very resistant to change in that respect and, and the much riskier integrated pest management systems that they need to implement are, are riskier. So they need that proper risk covered by the market, you know, and that's hard because yeah. the market isn't there for them. The market <laughs> is just not going to yeah. <laughs> help them out when their crop is low, you know. It, it, no, no, for sure. In, in one of your, sorry, um, in one of your articles you proposed that a, a, perhaps a good way to protect farmers in the UK would to, or at least in England, would be to reinstate the English bargaining body. Is So is that a form of trade union or? That's actually for workers. It's not for farmers. It's for employees. Oh, um, I see you. Right. What, what we had was it's called the English, yeah, it's the English Wages Board. And there is one in Scotland and Wales where they have a joint negotiation on wages and conditions for workers because mm. it was seen that um, farm workers were particularly remote and isolated and to negotiate with your employer in you know when you're the only employee it's very hard so it was it was a joint negotiating body and it was dismantled in 2013 we think it should be brought back because the conditions are, are even more acute now and workers are even more isolated and need to be protected by a, a government sponsored body yeah and that's, that seems quite difficult especially when the government's uh, or at least yeah. recent governments have been um, yeah. anti-union, seemingly. Yes, they ha they don't want it at all. Yeah, in England they don't want it. Yeah, it's frustrating, but we think it's still needed. We're still going to bang on about it. Yeah, no, for sure. I think that's necessary, and and there's uh, a lot to be said about discovering intersectionality. I think through um, what we've been talking about, the the activists and the farmers kind of both realizing that it's not just about food and emissions also about like you said workers rights yeah. uh security in, in in job employment but also wage justice in a sense um there's all these kind of questions that have to be interlinked and and i feel yeah. like when i look at the environmental movement i see this web of people that have been disconnected um yes. in their struggles and and there's a really big need to like bring all these people together and to to have them fight for a common cause. And that's why I love the the kind of climate marches and such because mm. you meet people there who maybe you know mm. are environmentalists because of uh, let's say animal rights reasons or environmentalists because they're scared of neo-colonial tactics that the that their government is is bringing about. And so you you have all these people that are worried about different specific mm. specific speci uh, sorry specificities yeah. of yes. climate change but they come together over yeah, they yeah. Come together. So that's partly why sustain is so important because we're showing the intersectionality of all the different issues you know poverty food poverty is is a is, is a real thing but it's often to do with wages and conditions and and um, 
welfare state and not to do with farmers having to provide cheaper food you know and all those kind of things. and yet farmers are often on you know poverty wages and etc etc all these things are interrelated and related to how farm the land is farmed because if you don't put the value where it's needed farmers can't actually farm the land or treat the animals or the workers properly or as you say it is it is all interrelated and uh, i like you when i go on marches it's very it's very good to see that it's one of the reasons i went to Warren once which we haven't talked about but i you know i went there because it was a job on um uh, as head of policy and campaigning which is what i've you know been doing for a long time and and leading teams um but it was a very big shift and i ended up talking about the arms trade and tax justice hmm. and um palestine and yeah. all, all sorts of issues which i hadn't done much on before but they're all about justice and about sometimes about resource extraction which mm -hmm. you know all all mm -hmm. part of the same pitch of inequity in in policy and particularly at a global level yeah mm -hmm. we've talked we've had um an episode before on like you, you just because you mentioned arms trade we've had a, an episode with uh dr benjamin Neymark on the impacts of the u.s military or just worldwide global militaries yeah. on uh, and their carbon bootprint, as as he puts oh, it, wow. um, yeah, yeah, and, <laughs> yeah, it's really interesting how I, I think what was it like the U.S. spends um, about tw a quarter of all aviation fuel is just spent by the U.S. Um, U.S. Air Force, which is just yes. like ridiculous numbers like this um, for yeah. really just military operations that in the first place maybe shouldn't even exist. Um, yes. Exactly. But, uh, exactly. The, Imagine the amount yeah. of metal that's going into into the arms yeah. trade. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. all extractive and harmful where that's it's being you. done. You know, we, yeah. Well, that's good that you're covering that. Mm. Yeah, yeah. We like to honestly, we're interested in all sorts of of topics. Um, I think, like you said, it, it reaches into everything. We have to close up uh, now. But is there any? Do you have any kind of final words that you'd like to say, or uh, maybe encouragements for these future generations that we've talked about, yeah. or? Or maybe, you know, words on how to bring people together. Um. Yeah, I think uh, in, in this time of lockdown, <laughs> bringing people together is, is, is an interesting one. Nobody wants to do more Zooms, do they? No, yeah. my, my final word was just get involved in whatever it is that interests you. Don't try and to, um, don't necessarily try to um, do something because it sounds worthy. Do something that you really believe in and then make it intersectional. Link it with other things and show the links. But also the most important thing you can do is spread the word, um, talk to yeah. people, let, you know, so more people know about what's going on, how they can get involved. Really important. All right. Well, Vicky Hurd, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. My pleasure. It's, very, it's really interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I wish you the best with all your, your future endeavors and uh, we hope you stay safe as well. Stay shielded, stay thank safe. You. Yeah. And, yeah. Thank you. And thanks for mentioning a CNN interview I did 12 years ago. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> well, we do our research. What can I say? That's great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I do have a Twitter handle if you can put it on yes, anything. Of course, I of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Just because that's a useful tool for communication. For me. Yeah, I, I okay. think uh, I, that's where I contact you first. So that's uh, at Vicky yes, Hurd. Yeah. 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 I see I, yeah. Okay. Thank you. Right. Thank you so much Good for luck. everything. Yeah.